you know, this Irish ex-special forces skydiving, um, uh, adventure racing, um, you know, like, like, that's fine. That's like, we'll put that in there. That's fine. Well, well, no, like, you know, self-proclaimed on all those things, right? Like completely (laughs) self-proclaimed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, like. You know, like all the ego, right? Yeah. To click of the fingers, you are, you've got a catheter up inside you. You've got bloody bowel therapy. You are literally not able to, you've got a tube, that, like a halo brace. You've got things screwed into your head and they leave you there from 9 p.m. And you've got a little tube sitting on your chin that you try. And of course, within an hour, it falls down. And now you can't call a single person and you're in agony and just like your world has gone beyond in terms of like like the phrase fml is designed for this particular instance where you're like literally i used to be an entirely different person how do i how do i cope with that Today's guest is an ex-Irish Special Forces officer who broke his neck on a beach in Australia in 2014 and was instantly paralysed. Lucky not to drown, he spent months in a spinal unit relearning to stand, walk and move his fingers again. Within months, he returned to military duties with the ADF and made his return to skydiving activities, even completing a 10k race. Now specialising in resilience, he has authored Unbowed, A Soldier's Journey Back from Paralysis, episode 89, Billy Hederman. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Billy, thanks for coming on. I'm looking forward yeah, to the no, chat. Yeah, excellent. So you've written a book, um, um, Unbowed, which is an incredible story about your journey from spinal cord injury. But I really want to, before we get into the actual injury itself and the recovery, which you disregarded all doctors' opinions and everything and, and ended up, spoiler alert, walking again, um, I sort of want to take you back to, to your early years because you ended up in the Irish Special Forces. So talk to me about what your childhood was like and why you wanted to go into the military. Yeah, so um, I am one of four kids. We're from the very south of Ireland in Cork. Just grew up in a small village. Um, the village always had its priorities right. It had one shop and three pubs, just, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's, that's classic the way it was, you know. Um, but um, I actually had no real interest in ever um, joining the military, kind of growing up. Never that much interest in being a soldier or anything like that. Um, I actually just really loved sport. I loved playing all types of sport. Um and actually probably wanted to be a, a PE teacher um, or something like that. Um, but um, in my last year of school, my career guidance counsellor um, gave a little bit of a plug and she said, hey, do you know, you could um, apply to join the army. And if you applied to be an army officer, um, you could go away. They could, um, you know, basically um, pay for university and you could get a degree out of it and, and do all these kind of things. And I that was the first time it had ever really um, dawned on me. I said, hold on a second. I might actually, you know, get to go to university still. I'll get to, you know, 
do some fun things, I think. I have no idea. It sounds kind of cool. I get to, you know, shoot guns and run around the place and stay fit. Um, they've got plenty of sport, plenty of all this kind of stuff. So I actually kind of thought about it that way, which is kind of a mad way. Like I no one ever, like, you know, like no family in defense, nothing at all. So uh, what year was this, Billy? Oh, uh, that was uh, 2001. So I did my kind of year 12 exams. I'd done a few interviews. And actually, I didn't get in. So this is post-September 11 then? So it's kind of funny. So like, um, obviously, it's the other way around in Ireland. So I did my like oh. year 12 final exams in May and June. So it right. hadn't occurred yet. And then in August, um, I originally actually didn't get offered a place, but a couple of people um, um, decided not to join. So I was offered in the second round to join basically the Irish version of um, of, of, of Duntroon, if you want to call it that, the officer kind of uh, cadet school. Um, and that came in same time I was considering uh, going to university. And then um, I said, yep, yeah, I'll sign up. I signed up um, to go do that at the end of August. Obviously, 9-11 happened, and I was in the Army three weeks later. 1st of October 2001 was my first day in uniform. So uh, whether it was good or bad timing, I don't know, but it was certainly a time I don't I don't forget. How? What was the transition into the Special Forces? Because uh, and I say that, I know that obviously you've got to go through the whole recruitment process for Special Forces, but if you're going through offices thinking I'm going to play sport and uh, get a degree out of it, what made you then want to go... I'm going to go to the pointy end of the spear and and be special forces. Yeah, so it was it was a, a a long transition, I suppose. The first couple of weeks that I got exposed to the army, generally, I was like, oh my god, I've I've completely underestimated this. But after a while, I actually uh, really started liking it, really started enjoying the environment because it was, there was quite a team culture to it. Anyway, um, had so you grown the- up with a structured environment at home? Yeah, so two boys and two girls, all quite close in age, hyper competitive. Uh, my father was a big sports player and um, he was still pretty young. So he was still playing sport even while we were in our teenage years. So it was always something around the house. It was always very competitive, very close, but almost kind of a team ethic and a, a strong family ethic to it. So I think it was almost that, you know, I kind of fell into almost like a tribe that way not not kind of realizing that it suited me or my my personality but the um the officer training uh lasted up until um uh 2003 and then i um went out and became an infantry officer with one of the infantry units for for a number of years i went and did my university degree but during that time i had always kind of um really at the back of my mind um wanted to be probably and a lot of people want to be you say well if i'm going to do this i want to be I want to be around the best, and everybody knew that the Irish Special Forces Unit, the Army Ranger Wing, is what it's is what it's called. Were were pretty much the best of the best. So it's actually in the Irish Defence Forces. There's um, just over well meant to be ten and a half thousand, and out of that, you're talking about you know a unit that's less than one percent of the Defence Forces itself. And of course, as an officer, you're going in there as a leader, which there aren't that many of. So you're talking about really really fine margins in terms of even getting through and then being picked up. So um, so I actually did it a, um, a little bit of a funny way. Um, I ended up doing the Special Forces Selection course still quite young, um, just before I went to university, in fact. Um, I was 
very fortunate to actually get through the course. I mean, I was only I was still only twenty years old when I did the course, um, and I kind of scraped through as a as an officer. There was you know I don't know sixty odd people started it, and there was I think um, I think eleven of us passed in the end. Is it different criteria? Do you have this separate officer training and then you've got to do the special force selection or is it a separate and different selection process when you're going through the training to be an officer in the special forces? Yeah, so um, in this particular iteration, what they would do is um, there was particular criteria. Sometimes they run like an officer week at the start of these courses, um, but there's different criteria expected of an officer going through. So, for instance, when they do a lot of the um, simulated or tactical exercises, you have to be the leader of them throughout all that. And you're assessed as a leader, not just getting through the physical aspects of it, but also the actual um, leadership, um, the ability to plan, prepare and then execute missions, essentially, um, and your ability. And look. They certainly realized I, I was probably, when I think back of it now, quite appreciative that they understood that I was a, a brand new officer straight out of officer training. So they probably gave me a little bit of leeway and they were looking at it in terms of potential. So when I did pass the course, they said, listen, you've never been on a deployment overseas. You've just about to go to university. Um, basically, keep your bib clean and go um, to, to uni, get a deployment. And then we'll consider bringing you back into the unit afterwards, if that's the case. And sure enough, that's what happened. So even though, you know, I went to uni, I, I deployed to Africa on a really uh, good mission over there, uh, straight out of uni with the, the same chat. Yeah, that's right. That was right in 2008, 2009 um, on a kind of EU peace enforcement mission there, um, which was really interesting um, and, and really good. So I was, you know, a platoon commander in charge of 30 people. So getting out on long range patrols for, for weeks at a time was was really, really good. Um, really, really good as a junior leader to kind of develop my own understanding of, of how to actually um lead and, and and manage people which was great um and then by the time i came back in in 2009 hang I was... on billy i just want to ask you something yep. about that deployment you said it was an eu peace was it peacekeeping what was the ter terminology that you used? peace enforcement mission actually peace, so okay. a, yeah. peace enforcement so what does that obviously we're used to seeing in the media afghanistan and, and iraq and so to so to speak um, but what does a peace enforcement compared to peacekeeping? Yeah. Like, yeah. What were you doing yeah. over there, Billy? <laughs> <laughs> Sitting down, writing reports. No, uh, <laughs> that was that was the week we were in office. Of, uh, no. Um, so I would equate it to, um, so as opposed to like combat operations, um peacekeeping so a lot of like what the irish defense forces does on a on a on a um normal basis is peacekeeping so that would be like un chapter six usually under the un banner blue hats kind of stuff whereby you would um only for instance in terms of your rule of engagement if either entity were firing upon each other you pretty much can't get involved you can only fire if fired upon Whereas peace enforcement, those rules of engagement were a little bit more robust. So for us in Chad, what pretty much we were doing was we were um, uh, protecting the population, the local um, population. So we were right on the border between Chad and Stan, really, really in 
uh, Eastern Chad, very, very deep in there. And it was a pretty, very remote area, you know, to get into. But once we got in there, essentially, we were up on the border trying to protect the, um, uh, so it was all around the Darfur conflict and protecting those people from the Janjaweed militia, who had pretty much been, um, you know, doing a lot of very nasty things to to the local population around that area for, for about a year previous. So we were in there pretty much almost on the border, protecting a lot of um, eternally dismayed. Uh, displacement camps and refugee camps which were pretty much populated and you're talking you know tens of thousands of people in these camps mm-hmm. and we were pretty much um able to essentially um as long as justified we could we could fire without being fired upon as long as we were actually seen to be in basically enforcing peace if that makes sense so it was a chapter seven mission so if that makes sense between the difference between the three yeah, yeah, so we were, yes, yeah, so we were doing that. We were doing that uh, for for a number of months. It was it was really good. Um, so you know, got up and down uh, the border, uh, you know, doing a lot of uh, village meetings with uh, the various elders and stuff. And it was a real just massive learning environment for somebody like myself, first deployment overseas. You know, 30, 30 odd people uh, under my command, getting out on you know week long patrols and stuff like that. So it was, it, it was really good. So I came back from that probably a lot more confident in in my own ability, and then probably looked at okay i've kind of knocked over what i need to i'd be really keen now on, on putting my 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 name in the hat to be picked back up for um contention for for special forces unit and because it's so small there's a bit of timing involved and a few other bits and pieces and of course um actually what happened was was i thought uh, a bit a bit of a when we talk about um uh, being resilient or, you know, um, a bit of luck or bad luck in this particular case. I ended up actually, when I came back, um, I went playing a bit of rugby and broke my leg. Oh, um, no. So I broke my leg in, in uh, I think it was August or September of 09. Thank goodness you'd already done the, the selection. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. But I, I, I thought at that stage, I was like, well, uh, that's me. Because there was there was a kind of a pre course like a small pre course that I was considering if I did that and you know like they're going to pick me up for this, and um, I broke my leg and I had to have surgery on it and a steel plate put in the bottom and I was like this is oh this so is you me. did a doozy on it like it wasn't just a yeah a little green you know hairline fracture you no. fully went the whole hog yeah okay yeah well if you can't do it you know you might as well <laughs> might as well do it right right. <laughs> Go but, big or go home. Yeah. So I was um I was laid up for a while and I was saying, ah, oh, that's that's that gone out the window. And I was feeling pretty, pretty, pretty sad about uh the state of affairs. And I remember I just said, look, just keep rehabbing, you know, just see how it goes. And I remember um uh, around Christmas of 09, out of the blue, very randomly, I got a phone call from the commanding officer of of the ARW from the Irish Special Forces. And I was in uh, uh, an apartment at the time, a lovely apartment, um, but it had no lift. So I was like confined to the apartment. So I got the call from him and I jumped up off the couch, hobbling around the place. He said, oh, Billy, how's things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. listen, um, we're considering um, bringing you up to the unit if you're, if, you're, if you're keen to join, maybe posting in here in January and we'll put you on the kind of reinforcement cycle and so on and so on. Um, listen, the guys have told me that, you know, you had a bit of an injury with your leg. How's it going? And I just like lied through my teeth. I was like, it's 100%, no problem, smooth as you like. I'm back up and running, no problem. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, because I had... Um, 
um you know like i had i had done some some parachuting and some skydiving in the military anyway prior to that and he's like yeah look we're looking at probably looking at you taking over kind of some some of that that aspect of it i was like yeah no worries absolutely no problem at all i'm oh going to do the jumping goodness. stuff no worries and i got and off you, the... is this still static line so it's worse on your legs and um so actually a lot of it was military free fall stuff which you're okay. right it isn't as bad but there was a bit of static line as well but i was just like you know I, i'll i'll patch that I, I, you know i worry about that when we get to it for now i got off the phone and i like you know hobbled around jumping up and down around the apartment delighted with myself <laughs> saying uh, saying i've got this call so it was, it was really good it was really good remind me what month was that because you they want you in january so what month was yeah, this now it was literally just like that was just you know uh, i think it was december uh you know right so yeah, yeah so i was like <laughs> yeah no worries and then you know got up to the unit i was absolutely uh, petrified that I was going to be found out for for holding this injury, so I kind of masked it, taped it up, uh, you know, uh, tried not to hobble anywhere, and I managed I managed to cover it up. I think the boss knew after a couple of months, but uh, by that stage I was I was back up and running proper. I had rehabbed it enough, so at that stage we were good to go. So after that, we took it from there. Um, the, uh, look, the, the the whole experience in the special force unit was fantastic. What a what a what a learning curve for me, and what a great experience I had. You know, I did. Um, um, three full years as the as the platoon commander in one of the special forces units there, um, um, subunits, and uh, it was fantastic. Like you know, like obviously learning to deal differently with different people, but also being, as you mentioned, you're you're really at the the, the top end of what the defense forces capability is. So it was it was really fantastic, and also you know, like even doing the reinforcement cycle and finally getting my beret and stuff like that. It was. Um, it was absolutely a dream realized, to be honest, from years and years previously. And it's funny because, you know, there's very few people around when, for instance, you get awarded something like that. But it's probably one of the proudest moments that I ever have because it's like, you know, where you get that, I don't know, internalized dream that finally comes to pass. And you're like, you know, I really, really, really wanted this. And I uh, envisaged it. And, and, and you're there also with a lot of people who've gone through a lot of very difficult times together. Um, so once you get it at the far side, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know. What tier, what is it equivalent to in terms of the Australian or the American armed forces? So SAS in Australia being the top tier, are there tiers in the Irish Special Forces or is it just you were eaten a it's- bit? That's it. That's it. You're the one and only. So um, pretty much we covered off on the full remit of, of um, basically military special ops requirements so we did we did a lot of things um but it was it was fantastic it was fantastic uh, uh, great times <laughs> are you co and i suppose to some degree all of them do in terms of the coalition forces and so forth but are you fully embedded in terms of the uk uh military as well or are you completely standalone in terms of the irish yeah completely standalone so like um a lot of our stuff was basically like directly for you know, uh, in the strategic uh, interests of, of you know, uh, the Republic of Ireland. So, um, you know, we'd work closely, whether it be on domestic operations with the Irish police force or anything like that, or if it was international. A lot of it was linked into, you know, like we do a lot of work with, uh, and this is all kind of, you know, uh, open source and very um, uh, well-known stuff. I do a lot of work with other uh, European nations. Not so mm-hmm. much, uh, a little bit maybe with the UK that that kind of came out, um, uh, but mostly with uh, European nations is where we do a lot of our 
for kind of cross-pollination and work with. And again, I was lucky enough to, to probably work with a few of them as well, which is great. So how long were you the platoon commander for? Did you say three, three, four years? Yeah, three years, three years, exactly mm-hmm. three years. Um, and pretty much you, you get a finite time basically because you're, you're an officer there. Um, uh, usually, you know, if you would come up probably through the ranks as a, as a soldier, and then you'd probably stay in the unit for a deeper period, but because basically it's it's such a a finite I suppose um, resource. Why? Why is it such a finite? I would have thought they would have wanted people in for as long as possible because you've got that training that they've invested the money for. They've got your knowledge. Like that's a lot of investment just to be like, okay, now you've timed out on your bike. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a couple of fold. It's giving um, fresh leadership uh, opportunities and ideas. Um, also, a lot of, let's say, for instance, for the likes of myself, people who come in as platoon commanders will usually probably come back again as senior staff in the unit um, afterwards. Um, so, you know, there was always that kind of opportunity. So they'll push you back out, get some more exposure and opportunities at higher headquarters and big armies so that basically you can understand where all the friction comes from and, and try and massage some of that and then get back into the unit if you can. It's a nice and way of saying politics and red tape. <laughs> look, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> There's not much I can add to that. <laughs> Don't need to. I'll say it for you, Billy. Really, well. yeah. <laughs> um, so did you came back through that, though, and then ended up being a was it on the selection committee? For the special yeah. forces, did I make yeah. that right? Yeah. So um, by by the third year, I was lucky enough that um, so again, like they don't have, I suppose, a particular like large enough entity where you'd be like have a, a training full entity that's full time resource than that. So so I was lucky enough that by you know the third year, uh, pretty much um, myself and and one of the other guys kind of led the uh, led the um, the course for that year. They only run one one a year. Um, so yeah, we were we were um, the, the head staff for that, and it, it was very interesting, I suppose, um, to see it from the other side, and also probably keeping ourselves in check and saying, listen, we were all we were all once in that boat, whereby you know the expectation is is very very dif- different, um, and look, it's you know um, the standard is the standard in relation to these kind of things, and. I think everybody acknowledges that you can't wane on that standard because no, you then, can't. you know, um, no, and it's interesting, no matter how, I suppose, um, in need the unit is, that, you know, like it, it is certainly, and it behoves us all to hold the standard as it is so that anybody who gets it, gets it on fair merit. Um, mm. and, and that's the way it would always be looked upon. But again, it was a great experience to to run a course, having obviously gone through a course, um, before and seeing the challenges that actually um, the students undertake and what you're look what you're really looking for which is interesting right like the physical limits you know you see them on the SAS Australia courses and uh, you know the TV shows and stuff right the physical stuff is the physical stuff like it's all just a vehicle to get you to your mental limit that's really what it's asking you it's asking you like we're just going to do all these things to say how bad do you want and if the answer is more every single time no worries because it's those like skills you know whether it be shooting or advanced navigation whatever it is right they're just the skills are you trainable um have you got the right attributes because that that's harder to change 
you know, if you're not a person who's actually genuinely a team person, if you're not actually, when you're on your chin strap, that you turn around and you pull the other person up as opposed to look after yourself, they're the type of things that you really want and that are you the type of person that could be trusted doing the right thing when no one's looking, even when you know it's going to hurt you more? Are you the person who's going to cut corners every time? That's the type of thing. And you put them under immense physical pressure to see that because otherwise people can kind of play the game. But if you put someone under that immense physical pressure, then true character or grit uh, is seen or not seen. And that's that's really, it's interesting running course by that because that's, and it's interesting as a, as a staff member because you probably take that on board yourself as well. Was it interesting going back as a staff member and running the selection or being involved in the selection compared to, like, obviously, when you're going through it, you're sort of probably just focusing on the next minute rather than sort of the big picture. But then being staff, you're sort of going, that's why they do it that way. <laughs> I remember being that being awful and, like, you sort of peek behind the curtain. Was it sort of that revelation for you in that regard? Yeah, I mean, um, you have probably indications, and I was lucky enough to kind of understudy a course as well with other people. So, uh, like, you know, uh, I've seen um, the methodology behind um, a lot of it, and it's not it's not rocket science. It really, like, you know, it's it's not rocket science, but... Um, Come on, Billy, it is. got to talk it up. Come on, point it out. It's rocket <laughs> like the, science. The, it's really the, hard. I mean, I mean it, it, <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is, but... You know, um, I suppose it's it's not that, like, you know, people, if if they'd ask, oh, is there a secret to passing the course or something like that or getting through, there's not really, you know, like just be as honest uh, as you can. And like those who, who want it bad enough, they find a way, they, they get through it, no matter what's thrown at them. You know, like you could sprint up the hill 10 times and they say, this is the last one. And then they go, no, wrong, another 10 times. If you're the person who at that, you know, gives up, then that's not, that's not, and, and you know, because I've seen, I've seen the fittest people I know lose it on courses. And I've seen people who day one, when you take a look at them, you'd say, I'm not sure if this person is cut out and they're still there. They're still there. So it really is about, I think, as like, there needs to be a standard, let's say a physical mm-hmm. fitness, but anything above that, whether it's, a millimeter or miles it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it's about heart after that how do you stay motivated if you're going like as a recruit going through the course when you've soldiering alongside somebody that you go god i'm struggling here and they're definitely i think they're top of the class they're definitely you know smashing it and they fall off fall off the the course does that rock you mentally in regards to I thought they were stronger than me and they can't do it? Yeah, um, I've got a couple of interesting examples of that. I remember two guys who went off who I thought were in my own course back then who I thought were really solid. Um, and I actually kind of resented them for that, which was kind of a weird way of looking at really? it. Really? Why? Yeah. Like you left me here, you bastards. <laughs> Kind of, yeah, because like they yeah. just divvied out their kit and then it went into our bags. But also I was like, you know, um, I don't know. I, I just kind of like, you know, I felt like that physically they were going all right. And there's so many other people there who 
um, would have loved to have been in that position, but physically it couldn't go anymore, right? Physically they were all right, but they were like, ah, I don't know if I want it bad enough. And I was like, you know what? That's your attitude. And I was shooting on the course. I was like, right, if that's your attitude, that's your attitude. But um, so that was an interesting bit. But I will tell you another quick story. Um, a colleague of mine, another officer who uh, had a just a couple of things didn't go right for him on the course. Um, uh, a couple of things in terms of his leadership appointments and so on, and so on. And he's a he's a fantastic individual. He's a he's a friend of mine, and um, you know, really, really. Like uh, he's one of these kind of wiry, strong people. Um, I just anytime like I, I used to do uh, physical training with him, he just had we used to call it like farmer fitness is what he had. He was one Skinny of these strong. Just, yeah, yeah, just crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy strong and an absolute engine. Like um, really, really good guy. But um, look, just a couple of things didn't go right for him in the course, and the staff kind of um were putting him under um probably a little bit of pressure. And um, anyway, um, they ended up uh, towards the the back end of the course when it was getting like quite close towards the end they ended up removing them from the course which i did find a massive challenge because you're right i did question my own because obviously they're all they're in your head the whole time um and i did question my own um i suppose uh competency from that point onwards and of course the, the staff being very very switched on and very very cute came coming straight over walking to me and saying yeah your buds gone and you're next, you know what I mean? Um, kind of eating away at the at the self-doubts, even so far as the very last activity and the very last day, I still had doubts whether, oh yeah, they're gonna let me finish and then they're gonna tell me that it wasn't good enough, which was very interesting. And maybe it was because I was young, um, still had a lot of self-doubt, still wasn't very confident in myself. But by the time I even got through, I was expecting a tap on the shoulder and somebody to say, You're not good enough. Wow. But they, they said you are. So that was yeah, yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They did. You just stand there and sob. I, I probably would have sobbed after all the, all of that and been told I'm good enough with that, all that self doubt. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Um, because like, you know, it, it happens, like it happens to everybody. It like, there is a, like, if you, if, you know, you've probably got some probably psychotic or social issues if there's no level of self-doubt particularly when they're putting it into you and like i said it was probably the most co- like overly confident or the people who had interestingly enough probably had never failed in anything before had never really lost like i remember one uh there was a guy who came on a course and like the guy had like just everything going from an absolute champion of a sports player you know never probably lost anything or much um and it was the first time that people, I suppose, probably really challenged his, um, his 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 ego in relation to actually you're not good enough, and consistently told him he wasn't good enough. Probably first time he ever heard that, and lo and behold, he 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 turned around and handed in his own badge and said, "Not for me." We're jumping forward a little bit, but I do want yeah. to ask you this question because I think it feeds into this com- this line of conversation. You have children. Yep. How hard is it, the participation awards that kids get in these days just for turning up rather than awarding first, second and third, how do you feel about it considering that comment in regards to that other person that was struggling in terms of not being ever told no or not had any uh, rejection or failure in their life? How did... I suppose, and from a parenting point of view, how do you then juggle that in regards to everyone now gets a 
price for turning up? Uh, I think there's like, I think there's validity in both, right? I think like we need to obviously encourage participation in the first place and making sure everyone gets involved and stuff like that. But I do think that there is a certain level of power and failure as well. Like um, I, I often think that even like my, because they used to joke about me and, and even before I went down and did selection or anything, they were like, you're a jack of all trades, but you're an ace of none. You're kind of handy at stuff, but you're actually not particularly awesome at anything. As it sounds, that's <laughs> that's exactly where I want to be, right? But, but what I had done or what I thought, you know, if there was one thing, right, if there was one thing that I thought, you know what, I won't be beaten on this, it's basically my ability not to give up. And that was because probably I went through an entire, an entire like adolescence of winning absolutely nothing. And I played, <laughs> I played soccer, I played Gaelic football, I played hurling, I played rugby, I played them for the school, I played them for the club. I literally have not a single. I mean, like I should like if, if you're a was, shit sportsman, Billy. What are you talking about? <laughs> Hundred percent. Like when? When did you got not get the message? No wonder I joined the army. Well, I don't know. I you were like, I wanted, way. I wanted to join because I had a good sporting. sporting I know. Thing. I know. No, I, you I, lulled me into a false sense there. I, I love sport. I didn't say I won sport. You know, uh, but no, I, I do think like you know, I'll play, look. I blame. I blame the team, Fiona. You know what I mean? Like I can oh, get away. That's no, fine. It's that's always the team. <laughs> No, but it was a distinct, like, and I, I, I joke um, at times, I'm like, distinct lack of winner's medals and, like, the power of, of, of failure over and over again, but still mm. going to training, still seeing the um, method in the process, like saying, well, I need to take ownership in the fact that, like, in order for us to win, I need to do my part in continuing to train to be the best that I can be. Right. So like I can't I can't get everybody else on training or I can't make us as a team be better, but I can make my performance be better and try the next time not to. So I thought my kind of power of people asked, like, are you what what makes you any different? I'd say, well, I do not give up easy in any way, shape or form. That's that's the bottom line. And I think over time, like I kind of had that at the start. And then the, the selection course was a real turning point because that was the first time that I had actually ever probably succeeded in something so big as that in my mind, which gave me more confidence to say, do you know what? I'm the, I never give up guy. I'm not very good at anything, but I'm the never give up guy. You're good at never giving up. That's it. That's it. (laughs) So, so that, that definitely like even after then, uh, you know, serving in the unit and then deciding to immigrate to Australia, I think, and even then coming into the accent, obviously it was that kind of, um, I suppose, at times maybe stubbornness, but it was kind of like quiet confidence in my own ability to, mm. if I was committed to something, there was no way I was going to give up on it. Um, so that's probably the starting point, if, if that all makes sense. It does. Why did you uh, get out of the Irish Special Forces and the Irish Army? So um, the reason probably why I ended up finishing up just on the three-year mark was that um, – the, the new boss had come in and there was basically a last minute deployment um, where the um, outside of the unit that they were stuck for, for a number. Um, and from my own kind of career progression, I was behind all the rest of my cohort for um, an overseas deployment. So he said, look, you want to remain competitive, you should probably go do that posting. Uh, and that's what I did. So I basically 
posted out to an overseas deployment pretty much straight away. That was Bosnia? Um, correct. And then uh, while I was over there, um, you know, um, I pretty much had had a couple of discussions with um, a couple of people and somebody had mentioned, hey, did you ever heard that there's this overseas ladder transfer process? Um, and to be honest, you know, I had seen like what I really want to do is the pinnacle for me was like being an officer in the, in the special forces, like leading special forces soldiers. I couldn't, unless I came back as the unit commander of the entire unit, how could you ever, from my perspective, in my mind, now some people think that, you know, whatever, but I was like, how could I ever supersede that in relation to um, um, uh, an achievement in relation to my military career? So I was probably looking at a few options like that. Um, there was obviously the... Um, just coming off the back of recessionary times um, in Ireland. Um, my wife was um, teaching French in the school, but probably both, you know, reasonably comfortable, but we had um, previously uh, holidays in Australia. We absolutely adored it. We did the camper van thing all the way up and down the East Coast and just said, this country is absolutely stunning. And um, we didn't go as far up as, as Darwin or, or anywhere that hot, you know. Um, we did go to the Barrier Reef and then we turned around, you know. Um, did you go Cooktown or Corumba? Nah, 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 nah. We didn't you go. You can we forget Corumba, but Cooktown's worth a visit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like stopped off in places like um, like Agnes Water in 1770 and it was just like, wow, this is amazing. Like mm. th this is an incredible part of the world. So, um, so yeah, we... Um, uh, I just kind of said, you know, maybe I might apply for this. Could be a thing or nothing. Um, we weren't pretty much set on, oh, it has to be this or nothing. Um, but I was certainly probably done in relation to, I was probably a little bit frustrated or jaded with kind of the rest of the Irish Defence Forces and the way it was going as, you know, you probably, you know, cranky captains at that stage probably get to, they're like, ah, oh, this is, you know, that's terrible. This is terrible. Why I'm don't really do biting my tongue now in regards to the politics of the Australian Defence Force, but that's fine, yeah. Billy. Keep going. <laughs> I'll continue to bite my tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereby, like, you know, when you come over and you're like, ah, oh, it's the same. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. But, um, <laughs> Grass but no, is always greener. I know. But, but um, look, we just saw it as like a really cool opportunity. So I put in the application to come across as an overseas ladder transfer. And um, then it was a case of let's let's see how it goes. Um, make no decision until we get a, an offer. And luckily enough, an offer came in in late, um, I think it was late 2013 or something like that, uh, to get a posting to 6RER in Brisbane back in the infantry. And I said, yeah, geez. That sounds so fantastic. did you have a choice? Did you have a choice of where you wanted to get posted? Because you've gone from Ireland to one of the hottest places in Australia. So I kind of knew, so I I, I knew I wouldn't be posted, you know, uh, like, and, and uh, so in the interview process itself, although they knew my background was in uh, special, special forces, obviously there wasn't going to be a transfer from uh, you know, uh, special, special operations forces to special into forces. special. And the reason for that is, and I would agree with it, is like, you know, everybody's got to come through the front door. So if I wanted to go and, and basically join the Australian Special Force, I needed to go through the front door, which is selection process in relation to them. So even though I had my beret in relation to the Irish Special Forces, that's great. Uh, but for instance, if an Aussie came over to the Irish Defence Force and wanted to do the same, 
I think the expectation would be reasonably similar, unless they were doing some sort of secondment or something like that. But I think if you want to, if you want to join up, you should probably uh, do. So. And anyway, I didn't know like you know any of the terminology, any of the lexicon, any of the Australian ways about the military. So I was I was comfortable and happy to go back into the infantry and to learn basically my my trade again and and try and keep my own ego in check. So obviously, I knew the three combat brigades were. Pretty much one, three, and um, and seven. So I knew that you know um, it was going to be either Townsville, Brizzy, or else probably Darwin, Adelaide, something like that. So um, to be honest, our preference was Brisbane. <laughs> um, we we were we were keen on it. I think I think maybe, and you know, I don't want to say anything too far out of school, but I think if just say it, had, Billy, say be be it out of school. I love it. All right, all right. If if we had gotten Darwin or Townsville, I don't know if my wife would have <laughs> would have accepted such a thing because look, we had, that's we, not out of school. Brizzy. I understand that. We we had been to Brizzy. We had we had friends over, um, and you know we really liked the climate there. We were like, oh, if we go up any uh, uh, any further. You know, up the way it might get a little bit uncomfortable. So we were like, you know what? Yeah, if we I'm get, sitting if in we... cans. It's really bloody uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what she had said is, she said there was two rules. She said, right, if this contract comes back, she goes, I'll only go with you. One, if we get Brisbane, and two, if the dog comes with us. And as a uh, right, okay, no worries. That's going to be bloody difficult to get it. So yeah. we had a, a Scottish terrier with us, but uh, yeah, he's, he's still here alongside me, by the way. It cost me a small fortune to take that little the little guy over. But anyway, it was, uh, it was good. So we got a, we got an offer and sure enough, um, got the offer. We got married in, in, in May of 2014. And then we were gone literally on my 13th year anniversary in the Irish Defence Forces, one October. 2014 straight into blew straight into brizzy and and straight into Inagra. so that wow. was good times and then a couple of months later disaster yeah yeah absolutely so um we um started off uh, started off great like um you know as in the weather was just absolutely powerful um loving it we got a small little toyota yaris as a run around it was an absolute terrible car um fuel efficient yes no it was it was actually very fuel efficient very handy you know it had dings and dings all over it from toyota that's true toyota it's a great car very fuel efficient very i i well i i love toyotas and actually you're right they're very reliable but you know anyway um small they are a smaller car so that probably, is great, and it was a, yes. and it was a three door variant, so it was very awkward yes. trying to get. And in you and struck get me as a taller person, Billy. Yeah. So therefore, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, and it was actually one of the reasons why, as well, that I didn't even buy um, a surfboard. So I'd done a little bit of surfing and and kind of bodyboarding and stuff over in Ireland, but that's in the Atlantic, you know, where you're wearing ten layers and 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 stuff like that. So I was keen to kind of. I was like, oh, we're in Australia, we'll get into the kind of surfing stuff. But of course, you're driving a Yaris. There's no way you're going to get a surfboard like into that thing so i bought i ended up buying a bodyboard which you know uh, embarrassing enough as that was alone but then of course on new year's eve day while we were on holidays went up to king's beach in caloundra um and that's where the accident happened so yeah it was pretty pretty uh frustrating stuff and of all the of all the you know um i suppose exciting or um inherently high risk things that i had ever done and i had done <laughs> plenty of those things up to now go for a swim 
the fact that like I got done bodyboarding was pretty disappointing. In fact, sometimes I like saying like I uh, I say oh I got injured in the surf as opposed to say body <laughs> bodyboarding. <laughs> Don't because... shame bodyboarders, man. I'm sure my I'm sure it's uh you know I love getting out there with the bodyboard. It's fine. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, like so do I. So me and like you know all the all the little teenagers zipping around like flying like doing their turns and stuff. I was like I I, I can do that. But um, my mum lives down the my mum in her seventies lives down the coast in um in Victoria, and she puts a wetsuit on. And she goes down with the with the boogie board, and she like, you know, gives the nod to all the fifteen year olds that are walking back as well. She feels like she's part of the clan. So yeah, yeah. The, the, the You're in good company, clan. Billy. Is what I'm saying. You're in good absolutely, company. Absolutely, absolutely. I hope she's got a rash fest as well. Like you know, oh, oh. she's got a no, oh, yeah, yeah. If you're gonna do it, do it right. Yeah, yeah, do good. It right. Um, but yeah, so uh, we were down there, stunning day, and like the irony of it, I just like did a WhatsApp video to my family, kind of rubbing it in uh, about what a what a fantastic day we were having. And anyway, put the phone down, and we were gonna go out that night with some friends of ours to celebrate New Year, or kind of in you know our new lives, emigrated to Australia. How fantastic this is! Went back into the surf for about ten minutes, but. The waves in King's Beach can be sometimes pretty, pretty strong. They kind of pull back on them and literally just got caught really badly with a wave. So it lifted me um, hips overhead and then just fully dumped you straight into the sandbar below. And, you know, like so many times you just kind of roll out of that or it's not a big deal. But what happened was pretty much just compression straight down um, on my head and immediately um, fractured my C3 and C4, got a minute fracture in my t5 but of course most importantly the 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 fractures in the neck also um damaged my spinal cord itself which rendered me paralyzed immediately from the neck down while i was still face down on the water so you realized immediately oh i'm in trouble here like this is so it's pretty yeah it was pretty interesting so i was certainly concussed um and i've been concussed a couple times before like you know i'm probably you know, so he said he played sport, but actually he's broken his leg and he's gotten concussed <laughs> loads of times and he's actually won nothing. So he's terrible at it. So, yeah, I've been concussed a number of, times, a number of times before. So I knew kind of that feeling, but it's very groggy, very disorientating. But I actually wasn't unconscious. So, you know, kind of and I can still obviously recall and even the thought process, I could kind of see the sand just kind of below me. I was like, geez, got wiped out there, Bill you know, stand up now any second and then another kind of few seconds passed. Okay, shake it off, you know, stand up now any few seconds and still nothing. And just the whole thing was very, very disorientating, very, very confusing, not really sure what's going on. And then kind of all of a sudden I realized I was like, I'm still underwater and my chest was really just under pressure, just like really sore under pressure. And I could hear something murmuring um, off, off over to kind of the side and somebody pretty much just waded over. And as far as I can recall, it was um, a, a teenage boy who kind of came over and just like rolled me by the shoulder. And as soon as he rolled me by the shoulder, I kind of, the surface was coming up and over my face, but literally I got those first couple of breaths in and that's where I knew something was dramatically wrong where I kind of got a few breaths and I was, I was under pressure big time. So he um, he called out for help. Two people ran in. Um, and of course, the how amazing Irish... though that he acted like how amazing oh, yeah. that he, as a teenager, he saw you and then 100%, went, this yeah. guy's in trouble. Yeah. And, and what 
the, the next part of the story is just as 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 mind blowing as that. The first two people who ran in, one was, and I find this out later, was an ex emergency nurse, and the guy who ran in was um, studying sports medicine. So between the two of them. They pretty much took C-spine control and carried me out correctly with my neck and, and, and spine aligned in place. Um, and I, I, I do think that that certainly may have had a significant impact in relation oh, to the level of recovery um, that I had. So and when they laid me down uh, on the on the sand, um, you know, I actually chest was really, really tied under pressure. Obviously, it was basically complete shock in relation to um, what had occurred. And I for about five seconds, honestly, I thought I'm probably on the way out here. I was like, think, think this might really? be it. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I was like, uh, is this what dying is like? I, it could be. Uh, not sure. Uh, fair enough. Uh, just kind of drifting. And I was like, is this kind of going to go? And then just kind of, I, I gripped myself up. I just went through, you know, classic military um, ABCs, you know, airway, breathing, circulation. All right. And then started calming myself down. <laughs> Basically, I did a quick assessment of myself. I was like, relax. You're not going to die. Stop, you know, freaking out. You'll be fine. So um, once I kind of sat down, obviously, I found it very difficult to speak or to, 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 to do anything. My eyes were very stingy. It was very sunny. I wanted to close my eyes, of course. But, you know, people were were keep on trying to talk to me. So there was a big handover period between the first responders to the lifesavers, lifesavers to the paramedics, also described where my wife was. So she was the only one sitting back up in the grassy area with a black Scottish terrier, you know, like you'd find one of them pretty quickly. Um, And of course, when she came down, I was trying to convince her that everything was fine. And she was like, "Uh, I don't think so. But, um, you know, and my initial reaction was, this is probably just a stinger. This is uh, like, honestly, I was like, this is going to ruin our plans tonight. You know, it was where I was at, not probably realizing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, where I was like, when actually it should have been, uh, buddy, you are you are paralyzed from the neck down. You know, you're 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 screwed. So um, so yeah, it was it was pretty hectic. Um, they eventually lifted me into the ambulance. At that stage, started rigging me up with morphine, and that's probably when I started getting realization. You know, where they're doing the the can you feel this test? Can you feel that test? And I was like, all right, this is actually much more serious than anticipated. They were talking about choppering me out of there. Um, they ended up bringing me up to Nambour Hospital where they did MRI scans. I ended up ringing in the new year in the ICU in uh, in in Nambour that night, and then I had the uh, the the um, very first uh, uh, care flight or what's it, what's it called? Yeah, care flight uh, mm-hmm. or care choice chopper out of um, uh, out of Nambour Hospital straight down to the Princess Alexandria in Brisbane, which has the dedicated spine injuries unit. But I went straight into ICU there on on New Year's Day morning. At what point did the doctors say to you, you're never going to walk again? Um, thankfully, they never said that, but it certainly, that, okay, I, good. I, I got my, um, I got my initial, I suppose, diagnosis and then prognosis, um, you know, in ICU probably about 5 or 6 a.m. Um, that morning. So the on-call um, 
uh, doc came in and did a number of tests and pretty much gave me the, because even though they had the MRIs from Nambour, nobody wants to make that call, particularly too early when they're like, oh, too early to tell. We just don't know. So on, so on, so on. And I had like, look, I knew it was serious. So even in Nambour, I made a call to my parents back home in Ireland. And that was certainly difficult, very difficult because I knew it was pretty serious. And I was just about to get on a chopper to fly to ICU. So I think, hearing it directly from me was important so i got rita to my wife sorry rita to hold up the phone to my ear and, and just basically say listen this is happening but you know i'm i'm still i'm still basically i'm still here and i'm still breathing and i'm still talking so we'll see how we go um so the diagnosis he gave me he said excuse me he said um you have damaged your spine like you know the brakes whatever whatever but he said you've damaged your your, your spinal cord um you've got incomplete quadriplegia what that means like a complete severance would mean complete um no 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 movement no no function uh, below point of injury incomplete means we we don't know so right now you can move a toe and a thumb we believe you've got this sort of type of um um spinal cord injury is called central cord syndrome so he said look we don't know what if anything will come back uh, we just got to wait and see. Um, but um, if things come back, your upper, or sorry, your lower half will come back stronger than your upper half, um, which was kind of funny because usually it's the other way around, right? Um, yeah. So that, so that was it. But Why look, was that? Because I would have thought that would have been further away from the injury in regards to the nerves, so therefore more distance for the signals to travel. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't okay. know what whatever way the like, you know, the way they explained it to me was kind of like it's like, look, your spinal cord is like a motorway, so there's stuff going up and stuff going down. What's happened is an incomplete a landslide has come across. So a lot of the vehicles have basically slowed down on this side of the road. Um some of them are going around, some of them are always going to be stuck there. So like at the moment there's a big man traffic jam that might um we just gotta wait and see to see how many signals get through or don't get through. So like you know um pretty much they didn't know maybe nothing comes back maybe a tiny bit comes back they just didn't know they're like look we wait and see but i gotta tell you that even at that early stage i had taken both those things uh, like i would taken two wins from the day which sounds insane but um but um it was it was it was probably the the case so the first win was that i didn't die because i was quite once I realized what had actually happened, I was like, I absolutely could have and should have drowned there. And my mind went really, really quickly to two of my close buddies, two friends of mine who had passed away back in Ireland in, in different circumstances, a couple of years apart. I was like, I am way luckier than they are. So even if I get nothing back from any of this, the fact that I'm literally still thinking and still talking um, is a win. That's 100% a win. So I went straight to that, which was kind of... um. Uh, you know, as opposed to the, I'm in an absolute dire state here. It was, it was straight to that, which was, which is one thing. And then the second win that I had is it could have been complete. It's incomplete. The doc hasn't said, cause I asked the doc straight out. I was like, here, am I going to walk again? And he goes, we don't know. And I said, I will take that. Thank you very much. I'll take that as a, you didn't say no. So that means I knew, and I knew from that stage, I was like, right whatever it is that I need to do, like this is going to be absolute horrendous, whatever it is I need to do, I'm just going to have to like game is on now, right? Like this is it. Like I, I got to get to work. Are you naturally 
a positive person or is that something that the military training sort of drilled into you and sort of shaped that mindset or was that something that you'd always had in terms of that positivity? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'd probably say there's absolutely um, the grounding in in some of the military stuff absolutely helped and supported. So I think like, you know, some of it comes from, you know, your upbringing, some of it comes from, like I said, like, 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 I think it was maybe incrementally over time that had gotten me to that point beforehand. So all my life experiences up to that stage, hopefully helped that when it came to like this biggest challenge, because like, I, you know, I had some very funny, ironic conversations with my father before I left Ireland where he was like, what's your next challenge kind of stuff? And I said, I might run in a, uh, one of these um, uh, uh, endurance multi-day races or something like that. And he's like, of course, why wouldn't you want, why wouldn't you do it? And I said, you know what, I just, I just wouldn't want to crack up. That's an interesting conversation for your dad to have, though. Why was he having that? Is he someone that recognized that you needed to have a regular, like a, a challenge presented to you all the time? No, so I was asking him what his challenge was next because he was because uh, <laughs> he was thinking of retiring and stuff. And I said, "Yeah, have you anything in mind?" He's like, "Nah, just want to chill out." And he's like, well, "What about you?" And I said, "Ah, oh, I wouldn't mind doing one of these things." And he just kind of rolled his eyes. He's like, "Of course you would, of course you would." But then, funnily enough, right? So we had some fantastic support uh, throughout this entire period. So my brother came out first, um, and I'm very close to my brother. But then my father came out af- afterwards, and. You know that was very difficult seeing your son in such an embarrassing state whereby i was i was i was um banged up in a um unable to move uh, in a hospital bed but he 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 pretty much sat down and he reminded me of that conversation he said remember you talked to me about like you know going through a challenge or doing this and he's like here it is here is the challenge of your life this is the one that now you got to face you what said you want a person yeah, and and I remember it so well. And I like um I don't usually talk that much about like like usually it's about the you know personal resilience and determination bit in the rehab and recovery, but actually the level of support that I got from people was really astounding. And also kind of people who knew me well enough. It wasn't it knew there was a big difference between supporting, i.e. Like, you know, if I was trying to do something, let's say, for instance, you know, like if I fast forward a few months and I'm trying to like pick something up in my hands and my hands still won't work and I drop it 10 times and somebody picked it up and just handed it to me. Yeah, they're supporting me, but I actually used to kind of the F off. It was more enablement is what I was looking for. It was more like the constructive challenge. It was the critiquing effort. And it was the person who was turning around and saying, I think your next challenge is this, or you can do even better, or already moving to the next thing and more enablement. So exactly like that, saying this is a challenge. Wait till you wait till you start walking. Wait till you do the next thing, and enabling me through that. I think knowing the way I was motivated and the way I was getting after things, I think that was um, that was probably one of the one of the most helpful things. Some people talk about that with support people where you get the fine balance between, you know, um, like what's the best way to support. And I suppose it depends on uh, the type of person that needs Mm. the support, whether they need a push or whether they need the actual step back, if you know what I mean. You've mentioned your um, brother and your father, but you've actually not mentioned your wife, which is still a very new marriage (laughs) um, at that stage. How did your wife 
Did your wife take the same approach as your, your father in terms of, okay, this is a challenge, okay, you've got to rise to it, or was it a different approach that she took? Yeah, so, like, we've been going out for um, quite, a, like, a, a number of years before that, um, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, both her and my father were probably, like, they make comments about it um, still, that although they had kind of known me to be, you know, um, one of these kind of like um, reasonably, I don't know, resilient or mentally tough people, they probably hadn't seen it in the flesh because they had never been exposed to any of those military environments or anything like that before. So when this happened, they were both probably taken aback in relation to even the level of um, both toughness that I was probably pushing on through challenging situations but also the level of control that i wanted to take in relation to my rehabilitation but for her um certainly at the start she was the same she was enabling an awful lot um and i was always probably you, you know because look the thoughts go through your head you're like this is my life partner they didn't sign up for this they didn't sign mm -hmm. up for somebody like you know all of a sudden every is like so bowel function was gone sexual function was gone bladder function was gone this is not what somebody signed up for you know i'm i'm literally stuck in a bed and they're spoon feeding me or, or a straw up to my mouth like this is not something that i would have ever wanted for her um but like there was never any wavering doubt never any concern and she was absolutely like like beyond rock solid and i think she probably um took a lot of people by surprise in relation to how tough she uh fronted up and how she pushed through everything and and pretty much gripped up an awful lot of things in my in my absence because i suppose in our relationship i had done an awful lot of uh, everything from kind of like simple um household related or, or just kind of like manual related stuff but just like gripped everything up in my absence and um, it was kind of interesting because I think it was maybe four or five months later when I'd probably been getting some really really good returns and we've been pushing very hard Um, I think some of her um, it was basically delayed onset of stress for her because you could only like and I say it to her I don't know how well I would have coped if it was the other way around, I felt almost um, lucky that I was the one who had gone through it. Mm. I don't know if I would have fared as well if it was her and how difficult it must have been for her to see me go through it. Right. So um, a couple of months later, um, kind of she ended up having herself um, some kind of like uh, back trouble. Um, like a lot of back pain, couldn't stand, like had to lie down for protracted periods. And realistically, uh, like our, our, like because she went away and got scans and while there was kind of minor um, physical, um, I don't know what you call it, like atrophy probably in, in her lower back, a lot of it was basically stress-related and it was releasing that stress after months and months of, um, I suppose, pent-up um, concern. And it was, so, it was certainly like post-traumatic, like stress being released um, from that. So it's really interesting how the body can take on like that mental, the the mental issue and stress can manifest itself in in the body physically. But it's interesting that it came apart, it came about at that time, and it's almost you said it was at the pinnacle when you were starting to get really good returns in regards to everything. So it was probably a bit of a, a time where she could take a breath and be like, okay, this looks like it's it's not going to be worst case scenario and it's not, you know, she's sort of 
battled on mentally and it was just kind of like that, oh, that huge exile of relief, you know? Yeah. So I, I, like when we when we talk about it now, um, I think that's exactly what it, what it was, you know? Like she kind of says to me, um, I don't know if you realised how how dire you you actually were, you know, like, and I said, I probably didn't. She was like, you know, I was looking at you and like, it was, it was beyond dire situation. But I think you're right that once it got to a stage of, okay, we, we actually might get out of this one reasonably um, okay, that then that release occurred. And it was like this absolute flood of probably emotion that up to that stage mm. had been, had been pent up, um, which was very interesting. Um mm you know, and how to manage that because from the, um, I suppose, psychological and social and, and like emotional between you know, like even our own relationship um, um, during that time, of course, it's such a stressful situation. She also had to deal with like, not just the emotion of us, but also everybody else who had, uh, who was basically hyper emotional, you had parents you had siblings you had friends you had people who wanted to do well but maybe you know they did something that probably didn't work out particularly well there's some funny stories and stuff like that but you know you're dealing with all these situations uh, and then eventually there just needs to be a release at some stage and i remember there was a really really um astute um social worker who who uh, kind of pulled i remember she was talking to me about my setup while I started transitioning again, this was a number of months later around the heightened of this uh, period um, where I was transitioning back to home. And I was almost boastfully telling her about my hour by hour schedule that I was doing from like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Literally, this is where I do my hand therapy. This is where I do this. This is where I do my, my, my. I remember putting me to sign and say, you know, you also need to, whether you put it on the calendar or not, if you're that type of person, but like, where's the time? that you're sitting down and enjoying company with your partner. Where's the time where you're actually going to go out and socialize with people? Where's the time that you're actually going to take a, a break? Because taking a break from this is not actually taking a break. It's actually doing you better from a mental perspective. And because I have been solely focused, I was like, first six months, I just need to get after it, do X, Y, and Z, do everything I can so that I'll never regret not, you know, not doing enough. But looking back at it now, it's like, oh, that was an excellent call by that person because we actually needed to stop up and and take time for each other and actually realize what the fuck just happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it was pretty crazy. You've been in this um, very, I would say, very masculine environment in terms of the military and the special forces and so forth. So you've, in this very, I would say, um, alpha male sort of a a role in in a lot of respects how did that affect you mentally in terms of now you're not able to like particularly initially you weren't able to do anything for yourself I mean you mentioned in terms of people spoon feeding you in hospital bed you weren't able to move so how did you cope with that mental challenge in regards to essentially you're back to being an infant in some regards in terms of your self-ability um, I don't know if that's a great way of explaining it, but in, no, in no, terms no, of, like, yeah, yeah. like, like reliability on everyone else. Yeah. Completely. Like, that's a fantastic question because, um, that's, 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 you're exactly right. The juxtaposition of the two was enormous. 
there was me, like, you know, uh, mid-December, like, training well, flying fit, you know, this Irish ex-special forces, skydiving, um, uh, adventure racing, and, um, you know, like, Billy, like... It's fine. That's well, like, we'll put that in there. It's fine. Well, well, no, like, you know, self-proclaimed on all those things, right? Like, completely <laughs> Terrible self- sportsman, but badass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like... <laughs> You know, like all the ego, right? Yeah. To click of the fingers, you are, you've got a catheter up inside you. You've got bloody bowel therapy. You are literally not able to, you've got a tube, like a halo brace. You've got things screwed into your head and they leave you there from 9 p.m. And you've got a little tube sitting on your chin that you try. And of course, within an hour, it falls down. And now you can't call a single person and you're in agony and just like your world has gone beyond in terms of like like the phrase fml is designed for this particular instance where you're like literally i used to be an entirely different person how do i how do i cope with that and i remember chatting there was a guy who had gone through like who'd gotten injured and he came back into the spine injuries unit and he was talking to us and he had talked about some really really challenging and dark um things like for instance he looked at himself very very differently he was like the way he had gotten so skinny the way his body was so clumsy now he didn't find himself like you know attractive to his partner anymore ever again all of these things and you're exactly right all of these like things that would have defined who you were are now completely stripped from you and you were a completely different person you have to ask somebody to scratch your eye I never asked somebody in my life to do something that I couldn't do. You know, like your leader, like don't ask somebody to do what you can't do yourself. And now I'm like, can you move that for me? No, the other way, please. No, this way. Like it's just really, really, really difficult. And that was challenging. I remember even the first, um, the first time they took me on like a day trip and we went like out to South Bank, which was difficult enough where you're in the, like I was obviously wheelchair bound um, still and they took me out there to walk around and I, I looked like an absolute, like if I had seen me, I would be like, what happened to that guy? That guy looks like he's been hit by a train, right? And I remember people looking at me and I remember people staring at me and I remember having some even um, altercation. I remember we used to, from time to time, they used to push me out to the front of the hospital. I used to like, watching people coming in and i remember a, a, a guy pulling his son alongside and he kind of showed him he goes what happened i said oh the sir and he goes see son that's what happened if you're not careful and i remember these experiences and i was just like this is so terrible from what i used to be but the real key on that one fiona i always thought was like trying to just catch myself before i went too dark or too deep into that kind of check myself and check my ego i knew that actually going down that road like i had to acknowledge that it was there you used to be this but bottom line is you're not now i'm part of like the trick or part of being an sf person or whatever is being adaptable as well like this is now your environment this is the brackets that you've got to work within i have to accept like i cannot fucking change what occurred cannot but what Mm -hmm. i can do is i can control it's like you know and this is what i abide by and it's why the book is called empowered is because you know, of, of the simple Invictus poem, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I can only control what's around, you know, like I'm the master of my fate now and I'm the captain of my soul. So I can, I can not control 
that that accident happened. I cannot control where I am now, but I can control my reaction to it. So I can get really upset and, and, and go down a dark road and be really sad about it and say I'm wheelchair bound for life. Or I say I'm going to do the damnedest that I can, the absolute maximum limit, because I can control my mindset towards that. And I owe it to myself, and I owe it to my wife, and I owe it to everybody else to try and get back as much as I can, because that's the way I am. You know what I mean? So that's that's probably the way I would look at it. I couldn't control what had happened. I had to mm. now focus on what I can control, which was my reaction to it. Like literally, couldn't couldn't control my body, could control my brain. <laughs> you know. Was that a conscious thought process that you went through? I can't control this, so I can only control my reaction. Yes. Or was that something that you went, was that just subconscious that you did it? Or was that a, a physical, you remember having that conversation with yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of did. Like, I, I, I do recall thinking those things, you know, because it starts off exactly like we just talked about there. It starts off with the... God, only a week ago I was doing this or whatever, and you start having those thoughts, and then there's the next thing, and then there's the next thing. You're like, wait a minute, you're like I can't, I I cannot go back from that. I just can't, and that's where it started happening. And that's uh, like I asked my wife, I said, hey, like because I, you know, um, abided by and liked the principles around the poem Invictus, and I said to read, I said, can you print that off and stick it up up. Uh, up over the table so literally or oh, sorry over the tv so every morning when they'd raise me up like frankenstein you know like up in the bed that i like you know during the day if you yeah because that's what it looked like I, you know i had the halo brace the on full halo, yeah yeah so so you know like while i was looking at it i was like you know keep rereading it over and just realizing that you know like um you know i, I there's so much that you can't control but you know you just got to realize that you know you're the, you're you're the master of your own soul, and that's pretty much it. At what point did you say this 10k race is going to be the challenge that I'm in a like that I'm going to head to? So there were so many different things that I wanted to. It's like, you know, using the overload training principle. So I was like, um, how do I get maximum returns if I stay within? Basically, it's like. How do you get faster, uh, you know, running a race while well, you practice at a higher tempo? How do you get bigger? You lift heavier weights than you lifted before, whatever it is. So I applied the same to recovery. I said, right, I need to incrementally push. And it's a really fine balance between too much and on the limit where most growth or most benefit occurs. But I was really that, trying to dance very tight to that line. So when physios were like, right, here's what we're going to do today, I would do that and a bit more. And when the OT was like, uh, sorry, occupational therapist was like, we're going to do this with our hands today, cool. Um, And I do a little bit more, even though I found it really frustrating. I found the occupational therapy, like getting my hands back working, um, much more difficult, much more challenging. So as time progressed, and even, I suppose, so I did four and a half months in the hospital, I was one of the very few people who walked out of the spinal injuries unit. But when I say walked, I mean like stumbled like a robot to the car. Um, So the halo brace for two and a half months, it was out by about four and a half months. And then I was doing that kind of home rehab program. And look, I was exceptionally fortunate to have been in defense. 
because they look at me. I know some people don't have good stories in relation to, but I, I, I'm, I'm probably coming at it from, you know, the perspective of having done a number of years in the Irish Defence Forces where there certainly wasn't that level of support or that level of um, um, uh, facilities available, you know, zero gravity treadmill, hydrotherapy pool, exercise physios and stuff like that. It was absolutely incredible to be able to get access to those things. So I very quickly started challenging myself to like, okay, going to do 50 meter run so i went out onto the track and i ran 50 meters and i was like okay and then the next day i was like right i'm going to try and do like one lap around the running track which is just over a k no worries next day i'm straight out there again and by the way i couldn't even drive still like i wasn't allowed to drive but i'm going out doing these things <laughs> like i had to get my wife to drive me onto the base so that i could go do my rehab and i was like stop here for a second let me try and see if i can run around here right and not fall over so pretty quickly and then i, I remember it was so it was only um early july and i was like i'm gonna try and do a bfa and i mean like i could barely hold my own body weight what's this a stage. bfa Sorry, a basic fitness assessment. So it's one oh, okay. of the kind of key milestones. You can tell I'm not really into that. <laughs> no, that's, sorry. So it's basically, you know, like, uh, I, I don't even, like it's, you know, uh, I think 10 and a half minutes. No, I, I can't even remember what it is like. Um, but, you know, there's a push-up element, sit-up element, and a run. Pretty basic. Like, to pass is reasonably straightforward. Well, when you're not, you know, recovering from being paralyzed, I suppose. So, um. <laughs> So even holding my body weight, you know, up just like that was really difficult. Even trying to hold a weapon, never mind hold it up to my shoulder was beyond, but like I didn't want to embarrass myself or give cause concern. So it was literally, literally step by step by step. So I went, I remember doing the, like just doing it myself, testing myself for a basic fitness assessment in early, I think it was early July. And I'd say if anybody saw me, um, like it was the first time that I'd probably gotten overtly very emotional whereby I remember having like and my arms were so floppy and so kind of shaky and stuff like that when I was trying to basically shuffle around the track kind of dragging my legs like it looks like you know like there's a level of spasticity still there which there was so I'm dragging around in terrible form and my hips are all over the place and I barely got in in the run in the time but I managed to do the 2.4k within the time that would pass you far like it wasn't an official test but it was the first time I said to myself Jesus I've actually done this I've passed a, a basic fitness assessment in the army again I like you know I've set it as a as an interim goal but I actually fucking did it and I remember just walking off the track you know, like whatever, 8.30 in the morning kind of crying. And I was like, you know, people looking at me saying, who's that skinny weirdo, Um, you know, crying, coming off the track, like, what are you up to? Um, And straight away, then within, you know, a, a couple of days, I was like, right, I'm going to sign up for a 10K. And it wasn't that I wanted to boast about it or it wasn't that it was part of the story. It's that I used to run 10Ks. I used to enjoy 10Ks. I used to like pace my times. I used to love doing my form in the Ks and knocking them over and all that. So I really wanted it was for myself to be able to turn around and say, hey, guess what? Like you're back. You know what I mean? You're 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 still you're still part of you still there. Yeah, you got limitations. But like I wanted to be able to say it would be on my terms that I would do or not do something, not on the injuries terms. So So you completed the 10K. You got yes. there. Yeah. Just about assuming... scraped over. I'm I'm 
<laughs> I'm assuming that there was lots of tears at the end of that finish line and with your wife. Uh, I wouldn't say tears, like eye rolls, because she was like, I knew you would do it. Like, you know, like she was like, I just know you at this stage. Because people ask that, they're like, was was your wife nervous? Um, and she probably wasn't. She was like, just don't fall. Please don't fall. Um, don't you re-injure know. yourself. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, at the same time, she was like... Um, she had no doubt that I would finish it. Like I hadn't gone anywhere near running any distance close to it. Like I think I'd run like that 2.4 was the longest I'd run prior. And I just signed up for the 10K and said, I'm going to run that. Like, you know, two weeks later. And like anybody else, like that's that's not like that's not incremental uh, steps. No. I think, no, I'll do it. No, I'll do it. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just do it. If I need to walk, I'll do it. Even though in my head I was like, there's no way I'm walking. Um, and then, and then, then yeah, I just did it. So, so we were delighted. But you know, if you think I stopped there, Fiona, you probably haven't picked up the story. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's next? I was already, you know, crossing the finish line. What's next? So there was some things I was like, yeah, okay. So I mean, I went back skydiving, um, which is probably pretty hectic. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, so the the following Christmas, so it was pretty much like a year post accident. I went uh, I went to to Gulla and did a few jumps there. And um, again, it, like you know, I should state that you know I made sure that even though I had my own kind of coach and instructor licenses, I got an instructor to jump with me to make sure everything was safe and all that kind of stuff. But I did want to still say, were you I doing do it, it tandem, or were you strong enough then to pull the cords and control the shoot? No, no, you know, jumped out myself. So the instructor jumped okay. with me and basically it was just yeah. kind of like watching me while it was while it was in free fall, which was good. But I do got to say, so like after I deployed the shoot and everything was good to go and I was under canopy um, coming into land, I did did uh, give a big, massive, sh- you know, scream and shout out to the world and just, you know, kind of saying, you know, I, I, I was pretty happy with myself that day. And I remember driving back windows down listening to Foo Fighters it was uh it was it was a good day so good I was really day. happy with that yeah you ended up uh returning to full military service are you still serving now nope so um I suppose kind of some of the close off as well was thankfully amongst other things um you know uh, regained sexual function and was able to have kids as you mentioned which was great so we um, had two girls um since then and I suppose it was probably I think the accident certainly changed um, my outlook. Um, I was going to ask you, Billy, you're stealing my questions. I was... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No, 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 go, go. No, 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 I'm happy for you, for you to talk about it because I wanted you to talk about it. I was actually wondering um, in terms of your – who you are as a person, it would have to fundamentally change you going through something like that, being stripped down to your purely just your mind. It would have to change who you are as an individual and your outlook on life. So I I was interested in terms of how that has changed. Yeah, like I I think there was, was, it's almost kind of like a balance or a tipping point. There was the like, I want to push back to 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 do the stuff I used to do, but then once I get there, that I can say it was on my terms, but I actually have in the back of my head what's most important in life. So I think 
the, like I, I, I certainly wanted to get back to to full employment in the military. I felt fantastic. I remember, like, actually, you know, like a lot of people don't like running live ranges, but I love running live ranges. And I remember the first time I did that afterwards, just felt a sense of satisfaction because it was like I'm providing a capability back to defense, and I just like this is amazing. But I think you know, and I, when I got to deploy as well, subsequently again, it was like this is fantastic. You know, like really, really you know, um, pushing on and, and making sure that, that I was providing service. But in the back of my mind, I think, you know, as soon as the kids came along, we'd always discussed this. It was like probably looking at other options because defense and defense has always like both the Irish army and the Aussie army have been really good to me. I, I can't say anything other than they've been really good to me. But I think that, you know, um, I was probably at a tipping point either where I was going to commit to it fully and probably, you know, try and go hard and up the chain. Or I needed to 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 step out and do something else, and uh, you know, like you ask a lot of your family if you stay in defense for a long period of time, you got to do postings every two years. You're moving them from school to school and stuff like that. And I suppose we did want to give them a good start, state, and grounding. And because we're basically so grateful to have them, because it was taken off the table for us, that we were really keen to probably set up shop and 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 stay grounded somewhere and just start from there so yeah i got out um got out of the army in um january 2020 walked straight into a civilian job and six weeks later COVID literally happened. literally yeah. walk into a to a <laughs> walked civilian job <laughs> well, yeah yeah walked into a civilian <laughs> job and six weeks later work from home you're done oh. yeah so where how are you now in terms of i, I know you d- you've done the 10k so you're obviously uh, uh mobile and up and walking and, and so forth but how are you in terms of your are there any lasting physical um ailments that you're dealing with or are you completely healed in terms of the spinal cord damage no, yeah so um yes there is there is um like uh, permanent stuff um but on a day-to-day basis when i'm probably walking around or or working or doing anything like that you really couldn't tell which which i'm very fortunate um to have i do have limited um dexterity and sensation in my hands still but um pretty much other than like you know i've got one or two small adaptive strategies so for instance i hold i had to learn to hold a pen a very different way almost kind of like a, a child or a baby so i write very funny now and people take a look at it and they go do you write like that all the time i'm like uh long story have you got, have you got two hours you know uh but, <laughs> no it's but, when you say listen to the one moment please podcast and it'll oh, explain yeah, it yeah, all yeah there you Come go, on, there really? you go. <laughs> sorry sorry yeah yeah just flick it to them straight away there you go exactly uh, but um so there's uh sensation and dexterity issues in the hand gross motor function balance and coordination are slightly off so for instance uh, even though i could run now it's a little bit sloppy um you know i certainly can't like lift or do and i've got loads of other like things wrong with me anyway as, as a lifetime in the military will will have anyway but um i i think the majority of the stuff from the accident is the hands um gross motor function not quite right um so you got some balance and coordination issues um there um sometimes i do still have some trouble uh in terms of uh, uh bowel related issues but again that's probably just management of of those particular situations but all all in all if they're the 
only minor, I suppose, um, difficulties in relation to the catastrophic injury that it was when you, you know, look back at either videos of some of the uh, rehab or, or, you know, literally trying to move my, my hand again, it certainly uh, gives me a lot of gratitude, to be honest. Did you ever uh, reconnect with the rescuers? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, would you believe I never found the, um, we never found the, the, the teenager. Oh. But it's funny, the emergency nurse, she actually lives uh, close by uh, to us here. Um, so we, we bought a house up in Bayside in Brisbane um, and, and she actually, so I've, I, I'm, I've met up with her for coffee uh, a number of times and she uh, she tells me the, the story of, of, of it and uh, you know, I remember even uh, we had her out years ago. We had her out to the uh, to the house after I um after I um came out of hospital, and she came over for a barbecue and everything. And uh, it was fantastic to be able to basically to thank her. Mm. Bill, you're doing uh, speaking now. You are a corporate speaker and motivational motivational speaker. Is that how you describe it? I don't know. Do you sound motivated? Resilient. You know, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Resilience, <laughs> resilience, uh, educator on resilience. Yeah, yeah. Look, like from time to time, I do that. So, like, even in my day job, I do. Let's say, for instance, uh, it, it's kind of interesting. I do um, like incident management, crisis management, and, and and business resilience. So that's what I do in my day job, where I'm actually so probably have both a personal um, uh, background or exposure to it, but also from actually how to manage through. Uh, major inc- incidents of crisis for from a oh, business so you but would I, have been busy for covid yeah yeah so it, it certainly did keep me busy but uh, and that's probably a lot of even the military background and stuff coming in and helping in that but i also then think there's a massive element of you know personal resilience that gets interwoven with that and of course the challenges that so many people have faced throughout covid and everything so i i do you know um, from Time to time, like, you know, if I'm asked to um, go out and and do um, talks in relation to pretty much whether it be the story, but more so so probably some of the lessons learned or lessons that I applied. So, for instance, you know, we we talked already about stuff like ownership, you know, um, talked about um, pretty much um, internal locus of control, you know, um, talking about motivating factors and then also having a growth mindset is really, really important. So, for instance, having that adaptability, like you, like the great question you asked earlier on, where it was like, you know, your ego was pretty much this. How did you manage that? And it was basically accepting that I needed to adapt to the circumstances and not being fixed in relation to this who this is who I was. So there are things I love sharing and talking and, and open. And even same, same with the book, right? So between the whether it's talking with people or whether it be with the book, the key objective of all of it is pretty much just to hopefully, like the story is the story, but it's 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 hopefully to help people. Like, uh, you know, it was the same with the book was was pretty much getting it out there. And I do from time to time get um, messages from people who say either they've had situations and they can basically appreciate or apply some of those particular lessons like you know taking ownership of their own situation themselves control the controllables and stuff like that and and applying similar uh, ideas and um, to their own situation and when i hear that like hopefully it's helped them that's that's the, that's gold because that's that's really all the intent ever was in sharing it like like it was good 
it was good um psychological i suppose or emotional support for me just to like jot all the stuff down but actually sharing it with people i really hope that basically it helps people who might need it the book that you're you're referring to is Un- unbowed um which is available everywhere i'm assuming yeah pretty much pretty much um should be in bookstores and and, and just googling it and get it off uh, big sky publishing or um are the publishers for it saying is there going to be a second book um that is a good question i do not intend on breaking my neck again so hopefully not <laughs> no <laughs> it doesn't have to be spinal cord based (laughs) please don't re-injure yourself yeah a couple of people have asked me that i'm like oh i really you know it could be on anything really it doesn't have to be i know i was like i feel like i've had my fill of like you know drama and stuff i'm quite happy with you know the kids you know punching me and and pulling my hair and doing all that kind of stuff and having good times with them and just just leaving it off at this stage i'm like jesus i've done a, a, enough at this stage i might relax for a while but um who knows hey who knows i mean like uh i i actually really did enjoy it it was a little bit what's the word cathartic i suppose in relation mm-hmm. to actually um uh, and i do believe in stuff like um mindfulness i find it very powerful i find journaling very good as well so and that's how it actually all started was actually um writing down it was in that like the genesis of the book was writing down the positives of every day finding the positives in every day saying what was good and even just if getting through the day was the positive and then when i came out and and they started saying okay now we got to practice your 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 basically your hand therapy and start typing and they handed me um they handed me a book to type and it was really boring so then i said you know what i don't want to type somebody else's story or somebody else's book and i opened up some of the notes that we had taken and started uh, typing it from there so so that's pretty much where it all where it all stemmed from and hopefully um uh maybe maybe i might get back into it again because i really enjoyed uh the the writing aspect of it hated the editing part the editing part is terrible uh <laughs> <laughs> the writing the writing was fun like i wrote i don't know i almost wrote like like in case you can't like love talking but i also love writing right so i uh, really enjoyed the writing aspect but then when they tried to cut it down i was like why are you cutting that down no, just do a podcast, Billy. You got 100% control over it. <laughs> you know, 100,000 words came easy. It was then cutting it down to actually a book. You know, it's my baby. What are you doing to it? I know, I know, I know. And there's some stories that are left out. And then actually, on reflection, I'm like, you know what? Probably, probably a good choice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How can people find you for speaking uh, speaking gigs? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the, the two socials I'm on. Just ping me or give me a shout. Do do whatever. Yeah, just give us a shout. Perfect. I'm, I'm hopefully uh, hopefully friendly, you know, hopefully, hopefully able to help. <laughs> I'll link them in the show notes uh, below on for the podcast episode, everybody. And I'm very conscious of your time because it is evening and you've got two kids. So I'm sure that your lovely wife has done with the reading and he's wanting some um, backup in terms of getting them to sleep. They better be asleep. <laughs> I tell you that. They better be asleep. They're in trouble if they're not asleep at this stage. <laughs> cheers, Billy. All right. Cheers. Thanks very much. 
Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 